this thing on? It's recording. We would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation upon whose ancestral lands our city campus now stands. We would also like to pay respect to the elders both past and present, acknowledging them as the traditional custodians of knowledge for this land. Welcome back to Season 3, Episode 5 of The Bar. We hope you've enjoyed listening so far. Yeah, it's great to have you back. Um, I'm Brayden. I'm Perina. And uh, we have lots of exciting discussion today with a very special guest on a topic that I think is very interesting for everyone who listens to The Bar um, and literally everyone in existence uh, on on this earth. But, you know, we'll get into that in a second. Before we do that, uh, we'd like to get into our newly christened segment. Uh, we're calling it the Weekly Specials. Mm-hmm. Um, just a nice way to put a name to this uh, little chit-chat that we have at the beginning. I, uh, I actually thought about the name the Weekly Specials uh, in the shower the other oh, day. Oh, really? Yeah, and... Uh, I was very happy with with myself there. I thought it was pretty funny. (laughs) It is funny. (laughs) I mean, I do a lot of good thinking in the shower, actually. What I like to do for assignments is as soon as they're released, I'll read the question and I'll sort of just gain a very general understanding of, like, what the assignment's about. And then, you know, just absentmindedly think about it, you know, when I'm on the bus, when I'm in the shower. And some really helpful things come out of that, actually. Like, sometimes I've been in the shower and, and... thought about my main argument being like oh that's it and I'm running out of the shower dripping wet to my phone like, like hey Siri like can yes. you please record this because my hands are wet so I can't even do it anyway lots of uh, great ideas in the shower <laughs> I couldn't agree more that as well as doing reruns like of my arguments that I've had with other people and been like okay this is what I should have said not that <laughs> yes the classic uh yeah rerun no <laughs> If only we were as witty as, as we are in the shower, you know, half an hour after a disagreement. I know, it just doesn't work that way, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, let's get into our weekly specials. Um, so basically what we're going to do is talk about, you know, our, our week and uh, what we're looking forward to as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, recently I attended this, that festival in Newcastle. I very much enjoyed myself. I am a Festival Stan, if you were listening to last week's episode. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, had a great time. Um, best lineup, I reckon, since pre-COVID. But that's not saying that it is a pre-COVID lineup. It was still very much um, indicative that COVID has taken a toll on the music industry. Yeah, no. But it does sound like it was a good lineup and, you know, you've enjoyed yourself. Yes, I enjoyed myself. I got to see Crooked Colours uh, live for the first time since I've known all their songs. Uh, and that was great. I uh, got a disposable camera, took some film pics that are actually currently being developed. Uh, as we speak. Yeah, as we speak. <laughs> so I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to receiving those. Maybe a primetime Instagram post is coming up. Like your Instagram in really quick. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, if anyone follows the Bar Productions Instagram, they, they'll know. They'll, they'll know, know what my Instagram <laughs> true is. True fans would know. Yeah, true fans. <laughs> Uh, exactly. What about you? How was uh, your week? Well, nothing like yours. The highlight of my week was losing my phone in <laughs> UTS Building 2 and going to Dodgy Dumps with you. Oh, wow. That's right. The first time you ever went to Dodgy Dumplings. Yeah, it was really, really good. I can't believe I've never been. I think Erica said she'd take me, but it's actually been you taking me. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Erica, if you're listening, we have to go soon. Yeah, yeah. Erica is very busy, of course. Of course, um, yeah. Being our lovely president. So, 
you know, once you get a slot there, definitely take advantage of it. <laughs> as soon as I can, I will. Yeah, well, in other news, um, and actually another random story, not really law-related, um, but recently my sister was actually supposed to go to um, Bali to do a story for her work, um, and she actually wasn't able to get onto the plane because oh, no. there was a little bit of mold on her passport. <gasps> And now I'm seeing all these different stories, all these different papers, like the Daily Mail Australia has picked it up, um, Nine Honey, of course, my sister wrote her own story on it, um, and as well as, you know, UK tabloids, The Sun and things like that have picked it up, all with my sister's face plastered on these uh, on these oh, wow. articles. So I think she even went on 2GB with Ben Fordham, which was really not something I expected when I dropped her off at the airport at <laughs> 4.30 on Sunday, but... Here we are, and uh, I'm, I'm rooting for her. Go, go, Queen. <laughs> How is she finding it all? Oh, I'm, uh, I actually haven't had the chance to speak to my sister materially since she got back um, from Melbourne because um, she's been so busy and, you know, of course, I'm also busy, I of swear. <laughs> I, I have plans. <laughs> he has a life. <laughs> I have a life, I swear. But, yeah, if you see a story about um, this Sydney woman was about to go to Bali and then made one simple mistake, that's probably my sister, if you see that in your feed. So have a click, boost the metrics. Yep, definitely boosting them as soon as it organically comes up in my feed. Yeah, and uh, I guess lastly, highlights, you know, of the weekly special, um, a class-related. How's your classes going? So far, so good. I'm kind of nervous about, you know, all these hard and heavy, like, assignments coming up. Mm. So kind of want to get them started and then like get them done a week before they're due just so mm. I'm on top of things this time around yeah yeah this what time well look I say that to myself every semester um <laughs> my success rate varies I think I'm in a similar boat though um I've just submitted an assignment for remedies uh just the minor research assignment uh if any of our dear listeners have also done that and I thought that was all right um it was in a bit of a quiz format although I definitely got one of the questions wrong and I figured it out um, just after I submitted it, but you know, that's all right. As long as you knew what that mistake was, you won't make it again next time. Yeah, exactly. And I'm not really too down. I have a lot of love for remedies this semester, actually. Um, Chris Cruz is a subject coordinator and is also my seminar leader and my goodness, he's good. He was knows he the coordinator for contracts. contracts? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he's, uh, he's absolutely fantastic. And I think my favorite part so far is actually in remedies on canvas he structured it so well. Like each week has a corresponding module and that's nothing new, but each module and each page on the module has like a prerequisite. So you can't actually access the following week until you've accessed, um, you know, and and supposedly read the previous week. And I think it's such a good way to structure online learning or the online component um, of your class, you know, in a way where you normally get walked through that in person. And, you know, of course we do that as well, but it's nice to be able to just refer to it and not not really be confused about where, where you are. Yeah, I'm doing remedies next sem, so I hope I have Chris as well for, you know, being my tutor, lecturer and coordinator. Yeah, well, I hope you have him as well. Um, I think he's probably one of my favourite uh, seminar leaders I've ever had. Um, right up there alongside Anita, don't worry. Anita's listening, definitely Anita. up there, yes. Yeah, I, I haven't forgotten you and your wonderful talks work. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, look... Uh, I think we actually have a lot of great seminar leaders uh, in the law faculty. We do. Um, it's really cool to see that. It's and cool to meet them every semester as well. Yeah, and uh, in a general sense, I think they're all very passionate about what they do. Um, you can see it 
in their eyes. Like they you just can. know what they're talking about and they just want to share the knowledge and teach other people. Like I've got um, Dr. Harry Hobbs for ACL this yeah. semester and, you know, his face like sort of lights up when he's talking about the Constitution, which, you know, it's it's not a very juicy subject <laughs> per se, but he makes it really interesting. <laughs> Yeah, look, and I think with that passion, it, it does rub off on the on the rest of the class. It like if does. if you're up there having a good time and, and being like, I actually really enjoy these concepts. It's very hard for the class not to come along with you if you're in person. Definitely. And I guess that's kind of why it breaks my heart almost when you have online learning. Um, I remember in evidence last semester, I had to have everyone had to have their camera off because of poor internet connection, and it it just really I really didn't like how there wasn't that interaction with the face to face and. I don't know if you go if you go on an online class. I think a couple were shifted online recently. Um, I certainly understand why the seminar leaders are like put your cameras on because yeah. you know seminars are supposed to be uh, interactive, less like tutorials um, in other subjects. But seminars are supposed to be an active discussion, and it's very hard to do that when you can't see yeah. someone's face. And yeah, all, like online learning, although great and convenient, really takes away from the organic process of learning and that interaction that we were talking about. There's that word again, organic interaction. I think it's our word of the day. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so now what we'll do is we'll jump straight into the legal scoop for this week. It's actually my turn this week. I'm very excited. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm um, excited to hear it. Yeah, look, I think Ray gave it for last week and his was very strong, but mine will be less of a um, fun fact and more of a um, legal development in the world of negligence, um, at least in the jurisdiction of New South Wales. So recently... The New South Wales Court of Appeal handed down a judgment that found doctors can be held liable in medical negligence for failing a sterilization procedure, you know, through professional negligence. And uh, as a result of that failed sterilization, um, a healthy baby is born. So the the mother in this case, um, Miss Jodie Lee, and that's a pseudonym, I'm not about to dox um, a woman who has been traumatized by um, this medical procedure, but... Um, basically she gave birth to a healthy boy and um, that is something that can bring forth an action of damages now in New South Wales Uh, and so the court unanimously I believe dismissed the appeal of the doctor um, when it handed down its judgment in February this year um, and awarded $408,700 plus costs to the plaintiff slash the respondent in this case um, and this included damages for non-economic loss um, due to psychological um, you know, disorders and the trauma of surgery, past economic loss, future loss of earning capacity, and past out-of-pocket expenses and future treatment expenses. So that's interesting, I think. I think when I was doing torts and, and civil practice, that was something that was a little bit contested. Um, you know, is it really putting you in a worse position by giving birth to a healthy baby? What yeah. are your thoughts, Perino? Well, you, clearly, like what you've said, of course it makes sense because you are giving birth to a healthy baby, but then there's all these ethical dilemmas that you have to think about that the lady got a tubal ligation for a reason. Mm. Clearly, she did not want to have a child, healthy or not. But, you know, like, of course, it's a great thing. But then was did she have other factors that she had to consider, like perhaps the monetary factor or mm. the emotional factor of, you know, raising a kid? Mm. So there's a lot to think about with, you know, medical negligence cases like the one you've mentioned. Yeah, and look, I would say I'm in agreement with that one. I think if you were to extrapolate the facts of this case and perhaps apply them to yourself. Mm-hmm. So for me, if uh, 
if I, um, you know, thought I was, you know, shooting blanks Mm -hmm. and, um, and then eventually had a kid, you know, say I had a kid in nine months from now, my entire life would change like there. And there's no way for that to go back there because your life doesn't become about yourself anymore. It becomes about your kid. Yeah. And that's great. Like when you want to have a kid. Not you know, when you, you know, you like, it comes out of nowhere kind of thing. Yeah, and in this case, you know, I assume um, the plaintiff slash respondent in this case um, was certainly not expecting to fall pregnant. No. And so I guess in a legal sense, I certainly agree with this judgment. Um, but where it gets a bit more tricky is in the moral and ethical sense, you know. I guess my only other comment would be I just feel bad for the kid. Um, exactly. I'm hoping that um, the damages in this sense were to, you know, better that kid's life because, you know, the the parents were originally not in a position to have that kid or at least the, the respondent. Yeah. And so, but in the end, um, you know, it's not my place to judge where that money goes and that's the same view that the court has when someone is awarded damages and negligence or for a personal injury. The court's not concerned what they do with that money. It's their money. Yeah. And definitely. so I guess I just wish all the best to that family Um, who was involved in that case, um, for the future. Well, thank you so much for this week's Legal Scoop, Brayden. I've learnt a lot. Yeah, I think it's an interesting uh, moral ethical dilemma, but also one that has strong implications in the actual practical legal sense. Definitely. And, you know, speaking of interesting topics, uh, we'll move on to our very interesting guest today. Um, who is actually a senior lecturer at Macquarie University. She's gone from having advised the government and NGOs on issues such as energy regulation and policy to working with researchers in fields such as science and law and being a climate counsellor for the Climate Council. This, of course, is in addition to her other accolades, such as holding a research specialisation and scholarship in energy, mining and natural resources law and more. She's also published some of her work on LexisNexis. I think it's safe to say that we are in the presence of a very bright and brilliant legal mind. So with that, let's welcome Dr. Madeline Taylor. Hi, Madeline. How are you doing? I'm well. Thank you for having me, Brayden. It's great to see you both. It's great to have you on here. Actually, would you prefer to be called Dr. Taylor? No, Madeline's fine. Let's (laughs) dispense with the formalities, shall we? (laughs) Of course. of course. All right. So do you want to ask the most important question, Brayden? Okay, I will. So uh, for every guest that we have on our podcast, we like to say, um, well, ask them a question. Who would you bring to the bar? So um, this can be interpreted in many different ways. Um, you know, it's really open to what you think. So um, do you have an answer to this question or do you want to come back to it? I, I do, um, but I'd first like to acknowledge that I'm speaking to today from the lands, the beautiful lands of the Camaragal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and I pay my respects to all of our First Nations listeners listening into this podcast. So, yes, who would I take to the bar? Well, first of all, let's talk about the social bar. And I would pick these two women, definitely, for their love of energy and also the love of the law. So the first person that I would take to the bar would be Ada Evans. Now, Miss Ada Evans is quite famous. I'm sure you both and many of our listeners will have heard of her. She was the first law graduate in Australia and she comes from my previous institution, the University of Sydney. 
Now, her path was very well forced. Uh, she was very famous for essentially um, sneaking into law school when the dean at the time was on sabbatical, uh, who was very against admitting her. And so she was really uh, had this stroke of luck in being able to study law. And although she knew at the time it was very unlikely she would be recognized as a legal person, so much so to be able to be admitted to the bar, she persevered and her academics around her, her teachers encouraged her by saying, you know, this is, this is for you to pave the way and to open doors for other women. You may not get in right away to the bar, but you are, you are a pioneer in this space. And so she continued. And once she graduated, she spent many years, nearly two decades, trying to be called to the bar until finally she was able to do so as the first woman. So she is such an inspiration for all of us, including myself. Uh, without her, I may not be sitting here today speaking to you both as a female legal academic. And the second person I would take is because of her love of energy like me, and that's Maria Telks. And you may have heard of her before. She is nicknamed the Sun Queen because she was an academic as well um, and a bioengineer who was very famous for her solar energy inventions. Now, she got her PhD at the age of 17. What a formidable wow. woman. Absolutely. She was extremely impressive and she migrated to the US and that's where she really hit her strides, where she began inventing based on solar. And one of her most important inventions at the time was the invention of basically um, solar desalination for seawater. And this allowed World War II pilots in the Pacific to have fresh water. So that was just her first invention. And she went all the way through to creating the first electrified mobile home. So every time you look at a solar panel, think of Maria, because she really is the queen of solar and we have so much to thank her for. So I would take those two women to the social bar and if I was around at the time when they were both living, we would have to probably sit at a separate ladies bar or not be allowed in the main bar at all um, and have to sit in the ladies quarters. So thankfully we don't have to do that today. And I, it would be amazing to meet them both and to host them. Taking to the legal bar, of course it has to be at Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the notorious. Certainly I would want her uh, along my side at, at the bar. She is just, um, I think the female version of Justice Kirby with her dissents, her powerful social justice dissents. And so those would be the people I would take to the bar, all female, and you note that they're all female, because really when it comes to energy justice and climate change, women are at the forefront. It's absolutely proven that women are 14 times more likely to um, be at risk from climate change, natural disasters, even what we've seen in Lismore, the tragedy of the floods, it's women who are out there pioneering communities and organizing volunteers. Really, women are at the forefront of a lot of climate energy movements. And so that is why I would always want female company at the bar. I think we've had Ada Evans um, as a guest on the bar as well. So someone in her first episode mentioned Ada Evans and that was my first introduction to her and you know, absolutely fell in love with her journey as well. So it's amazing how that theme is being reiterated amongst our guests as well. Mm. Mm, that's right. I mean, we've just had International Women's Day and, and the theme was about sustainability and 
we had so many powerful commentators looking uh, at energy from a feminist perspective, which I think is very much the case. We need to center uh, females and other minorities at the center of the energy system to really achieve energy justice. And Ada is such a pioneer and it's funny, I was speaking to a colleague of mine about her and she said, well, you know, when she um, was admitted to the bar, the newspaper, the local newspaper reported about the fact that her dress matched her hood, graduation hood. I mean, doesn't that just say it all and how far, you know, we've come, but it's just so disappointing that that's what was reported on, what, what she was wearing and not this amazing achievement. So when you dig deeper and deeper into uh, Ava's uh, stories, it's really amazing what she's done. Mm. Yeah, it is. It is funny. We do actually have a lot of love for Ada Evans at the bar. Um, that episode that Prina was just talking about was our very first episode of the season. So our first run as, uh, as hosts. And um, Georgia, one of our producers, um, chose Ada Evans as her guest to bring to the bar. Um, and also mentioned the uh, the interesting but kind of disappointing fact that you would have had to sit in a, in a different section of the bar. But yeah, as you said, very cool to see where we've come and very still got ways to go uh, in that regard. Definitely. Yeah, so um, also just something in regards to what you were talking about in the Who Would You Take to the Bar... Um, I thought it was very interesting that you said um, that we need to put women and minorities at the front of, uh, of energy policy. And I would actually agree with that statement because, you know, if it doesn't work for everyone, then it doesn't work. Um, do you have any, you know, anything to add in regards to that or should we move on? Yes. I mean, females are also over 50% of the population. So if you don't account for that, then you're missing not only a huge part of the picture, uh, but also the intellectual prowess, the, the social capacity, different lenses that females bring. And it is certainly acknowledged in the literature that energy law and energy in particular has been seen to be quite technocratic, quite commercial, quite corporate. I myself come from a commercial corporate law background. So it's interesting um, the gendered lens around energy law is, is slowly shifting, which is wonderful. We've made a lot of strides in that respect. And we're increasingly seeing uh, females, particularly CEOs, uh, in charge of energy corporations. And that's something that's quite new. We still have a very far way to go. But I think that the topic of International Women's Day this year really says it all, that sustainability and, and women's and women's rights go hand in hand. And it's absolutely crucial as part of really utilizing and ascertaining justice, not just the law, but the concept, the normative concept of justice around inclusivity. And it's not just females, it's obviously our First Nations people, it's the elderly, the disabled, all of those in, in, that, in that different kind of category, if you like, from what the technocratic, traditional neoliberal lens would maybe view as being energy. Mm. No, that's definitely true. And correct me if I'm wrong here, but is there also some kind of signs behind, you know, women going to a fight or flight mode when it comes to social, environmental and climate change issues? I, I don't know if there is a science behind this, but would you be able to maybe talk more on that? Yes, um, of course, there's been a lot of studies into the psychology of these sorts of things. I think it's certainly true to say that we can't put a gender on fight or flow, flight or hunter or gatherer, gather, I would sort of reject that notion. But I would certainly agree with you that the psychological effects 
of climate change, natural disasters for women in particular, it's absolutely falling upon them there. It is, it is really um, scientifically proven that women in particular bear the brunt of that psychological effect of a natural disaster, of um, being in the Anthropocene, of worry for their children's future. Certainly that's the case. And I think going back to the example we cited earlier, for the Northern New South Wales floods and in Queensland, we have seen females leading time and time again to try and bring the community together to start the cleanup, to start the psychological process of healing. So I think more and more uh, in the climate movement and in energy in general, we're going to see women leading because what we need for the energy system is a transformation. Unlike one we have ever seen before, the sixth industrial transformation, if you like. And this time it needs to be women. It needs to be these other groups that were previously discounted at before to really have a ground up transformation of our energy system. All right, so Madeline, you mentioned that you moved from corporate law into environmental justice. I was just wondering what made you make that jump and what actually got you started with law and energy justice and reform and so on? It's a great question. Uh, I am really a born academic, I have to tell you. I have to uh, admit my perspective on this right away. I really always wanted to be an academic. Uh, I always fascinated by law and I survived a very, very little time <laughs> in practice, let's say, of law for that very reason. So uh, I did my law degree, my LLB at Bond University, and there I really fell in love with the law. And I think I was first drawn to law because of justice, because of this philosophical notion of the public good and the ability to access justice. And I think all of us as law students uh, are really drawn to history. And so I was very drawn to the history of the law as well. And when I began my LLB studies, I did specialize in commercial and corporate law. And I really thought that that's you know, where my passion lay at the time. And so I really majored in those areas. And uh, the very short amount of time I spent in practice was as a clerk for the International Commercial Legal Council for Billabong, which at the time was a thriving <laughs> corporation um, on the Gold Coast where I was. This is prior to the insolvent trading and prior to the whole board um, <laughs> getting fined and imprisoned. So at the time, it was sort of the heyday of Billabong, if you like. <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting. No, and that's funny that you say that because I didn't actually know that Billabong went insolvent like that. And But what I do yeah. remember is when I was younger, being... Um, you know, pretty bogan, um, funnily enough, I would wear a lot of billabong as a kid. I would say it was probably 50% of my wardrobe. And um, and then I remember it just being very difficult to find anywhere. Uh, and I guess mm. that's the reason why. <laughs> yes, white-collar crime rating. Uh, so, yes, it was interesting. Um, <laughs> on many occasions, there were some quite... Um, interesting meetings I'm not at liberty to tell you about, but yes, it was interesting. Um, and I was there for just a short period of time, essentially. 
And I would be writing these legal briefs for my international legal counsel, um, and they'd be very, very detailed indeed. I would be producing pages and pages of research into you know, the intellectual property and patent and um, sort of uh, IP uh, acquisition of many brands, because at that time there was a lot of mergers and acquisitions going on in Billabong, and indeed they were um, acquiring Tiger Lily and Volcom at the time. So I was writing these long legal historical essays into sort of the social fabric of these different brands. And my international legal counsel said to me, you're an academic, you just, you can't, you cannot be writing these hugely long briefs when we get paid by the minute, uh, it's not going to happen. I, I said, you know what, you're right. I need to just <laughs> admit this to myself um, that my, my heart is in academia and it's at, it's at universities. So mm. I promptly went back um, and my professors welcomed me back with open arms. They always knew I, how I would be back, they said. Um, <laughs> and when I came back to, to see the professors who had taught me, I immediately started working as a researcher, as a research fellow in various research centres. Um, and that was a wonderful time where I was very heavily mentored, uh, particularly by women, which is something I'm very passionate about, um, in energy law. And the way I came to energy and my, my passion for energy and the law actually comes originally from my love of food. <laughs> so food and energy are, you know, the two things that sustain life. To me, they're two public goods. And one of my very first um, research tasks as a research fellow was on a grant. I was on a grant for the Department of Agriculture and I essentially were tasked with the very horrible job of going around Australia sampling lots of cheese because we were looking into the free trade agreement with India. Oh, that's a and terrible then, arrangement. I can't yeah, believe you had to horrible. eat all that cheese. No. How'd you survive that? <laughs> yes, it was, uh, yes, I got paid to do that. So it was quite lovely. I, I got to go around the country and learned a lot about cheese, which is not a passion of everybody's, I think. Um, <laughs> learning about geographical indications of origin. So it was it was the commercial law aspects of intellectual property at the time. And when I was going around Australia, sampling this lovely cheese, gaining lots of weight while doing so, <laughs> I met several lovely farmers who, a lot of them I'm actually still in touch with today. So when I was interviewing these farmers, one of the things I noticed is that quite a few of them had solar panels on their houses, on their barns, on, the, on their working buildings. And I would say to them, that's wonderful. Uh, solar energy is, is, is great. I'm so glad that you have that. And they would reply by saying, yes, it is wonderful. And we're passionate about decarbonisation. But unfortunately, solar is very expensive to install, despite the tariffs at the time. Now, that was at the time. This is over a decade ago. Now, solar energy is the cheapest form of electricity generation. It's around um, 13 cents a kilowatt hour. Very cheap now. But at the time, it was so expensive. And I remember thinking to myself, how could, how is this, this is not right. Doing the right thing, um, wanting to decarbonize and use a free resource, fuel, uh, fuel stock, which is the sun, shouldn't be so expensive. And it got me really interested. And on the flip side, the other thing that I saw that really drew me to energy as well, when working with farmers, was coal seam gas. Now, at the time, I was interviewing farmers in the Darling Downs, which is one of our food bowls of Australia. And I'm from Queensland originally, and I knew the area quite well. 
And I would speak to these farmers about their beautiful dairy properties, um, about cheese and all these lovely things. And they would say to me, yes, but I, I don't know how long I'm going to be on the land for. I don't know if I can afford to stay. And Colston gas is happening next door. I've had the landman come knocking on my door about Colston gas. Uh, and I just was shocked. I was shocked to hear this. I had no idea that this was happening, that Colston gas was encroaching on farmland on, and other, other environmentally sensitive areas. And I said this to my professor that I was working with. I said, this is a huge problem. I, I, I can't sleep at night knowing that this arable land, this soil, and when you go and you, you visit it, it's so beautiful. And the water could be contaminated by Colston gas extraction. What's What's going on here? Where's the legal protections? I was mm. shocked. I remember seeing videos um, back in the day of farmers getting lighters and lighting their creeks on fire because the coal seam gas had leaked through uh, and was sitting in the mixed in with the water. That's right, and that's the methane that's that's linked linked into the water there, and it's seeped into the water, and that's gas leakage. And so I said, this is a huge problem. And the professor said, so what are you going to do about it? And so I did my PhD on that topic, on the regulation of coal seam gas and the protection of farmland. And that took me to some wonderful places, um, particularly British Columbia, where I spent a lot of my time looking at their regulation. I think that's the first time I was really exposed to what good energy regulation and policy looked like in Vancouver. Um, and speaking to academics there and understanding what energy justice was because we really didn't have it in Australia yet. Um, we didn't have this concept of, of justice around energy. And I also spent uh, a period of time living in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia and that's where I really saw energy poverty. I saw what it was like for people who didn't have access to electricity, what, what palm oil uh, being burnt without any regulation and not being able to breathe when you went outside looked like. And I realized how many injustices there is in energy regulation across the world. And that's what really got me so um, fascinated by this field and continuously so. Uh, every day there's something new in this space as a new development, it's rapidly moving. But it's also one of the greatest challenges we face, not only in law, but as a society. Mm, certainly, I agree with that. I, d I do think it is a challenging thing. And, you know, I think there is, it's very difficult to find the answer. But I think what is important is that we need to be constantly trying. We need to be innovating as a nation, um, moving forward you know, um, to make sure that we are at least trying. And even if it doesn't work, even if, you know, a new technology, for example, doesn't work, now we know that doesn't work, we can focus our efforts on other things because there is a solution here. Like you said, solar power, cheapest power at the moment. Um, I don't understand why that's not being pushed more um, by, for example, the government. Um, but, you know, we won't go too deep into that uh, just yet. Um, I, do, I would like to ask, though... Um, what do you think is the importance of the role that law plays in, uh, in energy justice um, and how it can prevent, for example, energy poverty, like you were talking about, versus discretionary executive power by the government um, and government policy? So what, you know, what does the law bring to the table in, uh, in being able to regulate this? Mm. And I think, Brayden, this sort of springboards off of your earlier comment which is that this is a transformation. It's not a transformation of the status quo of the law at all. What we need to do 
is start from the bottom up with technology-led approaches grounded in social justice. That's what energy justice is about. It's about allowing communities in to have decision-making powers, to distribute benefits evenly, to have recognition of different sets of populations and include them in the energy justice system. So the role of the law, I don't think we can see the law as it's technically been, I guess, historically for energy, which is very technocratic, um, very economy first, uh, very commercial focus. And of course, the commercial law around energy is extremely important. Licensing, licensing, um, development approvals, all of these things are so, so important. But in order for the role to really take its place to ensure flourishing of the energy system, where we actually receive benefits evenly distributed across society, we need to put justice in there. And that's what makes it so different to just energy law. It's putting justice at the forefront. And so going back to your earlier comment, Brayden, it's because it's a multidisciplinary concept, why it's so powerful. I think that's one of the reasons why energy justice is so powerful. The law doesn't operate in a vacuum. I'm a firm believer of teaching and researching about law in action and putting communities at the forefront. And energy justice allows that, it allows scholars and energy providers and other actors like governments, etc., to actually put multidisciplinarity at the heart of energy system decision-making. So looking at the social consequences, looking at the governance and environmental consequences of where you will site your solar energy farm is extremely important. And it's sort of like this other dimension to um, really the, the three, uh, the tripartite pillars of energy around sustainability and economics and these sorts of things. It's almost like it's this other tenant. And so when you think about energy justice, the original three pillars were uh, distributive justice, procedural justice, and recognition justice. And all of those different normative frameworks seek to put communities at the center of decision-making for energy, if that makes sense. So really, I think it's such a powerful concept. It's quite a new concept as well. It's only been around for about a decade or so. These other older concepts like environmental justice and climate justice as well are, are broader concepts, if you like, and they're all very, very important. Energy justice is, is quite targeted in looking at technological and societal transformation of energy in particular. And so I see the role of the law going forward um, as hopefully allowing and requiring um, the executive um, legislative powers and decision-making bodies to center justice at the heart of their decision-making. Instead of just having these broad weighing up tests of ecological sustainable development, for example, where there isn't really a lot of prescription, actually injecting energy justice into statute and actually starting to have that debate at the forefront and having really rigorous social impact assessments on energy projects, for example, is a key area of the law where the law can really shine a light and a path forward to a really equitable and sustainable energy future. And it's also my hope that in the future, um, energy justice will be litigated. We've seen a lot of climate litigation now, uh, increasingly so. In fact, Australia is the second most 
litigious when it comes to climate, which is something I'm very proud of. Um, and we've got about a 53% success rate, which is great. We, we want to get it up there, but that's it's good. So we're, we're having this rigorous debate around climate, and we're starting to see that feed through into, for example, fossil fuel companies, um, for example, the, the current Santos case. But I would like to see energy justice really prosecuted about where, for example, coal plants are being cited. Uh, are they nearby marginalised communities? Usually they are. Um, looking at things like the Beedaloo gas extraction program, a lot of those leases and licences are located on First Nations land. So where's the energy justice in that? I think there are so many interesting practical examples um, of the law where it can intervene here. And I've just written a piece actually about solar energy and injecting energy justice um, into solar energy regulation in Vanuatu, for example, where we do have fuel poverty and we only have 63% of people with electricity access, for example. So there's many different areas where the law can intervene. Thank you. I think that was a amazing. Yeah, great explanation. I learned a lot as well. Um, well. This next question is something that's just popped into my head while you were talking about seeing women at the forefront of energy justice and all of these different reforms that we want to see in the future. But while we're talking about that, we're talking about the women of now, not the women of future who are still at school. So I just kind of wanted to get your opinion on how do you think energy justice could, you know, be introduced into the schooling and the educational sector? Because I, I remember learning about palm oil when I was younger and, you know, just swearing off of Kit Kats because someone told me that, you know, they use palm oil and they showed a video and I was like instantly turned off by how it's sourced. Um, and then there's, you know, um, sustainable sourcing of palm oil, which you learn about much later on. But yeah. That's a great, a great point. Um, education around all of this is key. And I think um, an example that could be taught in, in classrooms is actually playing out in front of our very eyes with the petroleum crisis. So the Ukrainian war and our evident dependency on petroleum still has come to light. And we've seen the most marginalised communities being affected by the high cost of oil and oil is still innately unfortunately linked in so many products cleaning products medicine cosmetics everything plastic and I think even teaching children just about that about oil dependency and and why when mom and dad go to the you know petrol station it's so expensive for them and it will only increasingly be so and why it's important to have an electric vehicle or take public transport to school. Those things are very, very important as well. And then you can go all the way through to very, very practical examples for our next generations around showing schools that have got renewable energy. Um, more and more, we are seeing schools with solar panels on their roofs. It's wonderful to actually show children how that how that goes about and how that takes place i think would be wonderful for them so not only about consumerism um, and you know looking at oil in, in that light but also looking at how is our energy coming to our school it's the solar panels um all of these different technologies that we could really show off i think in schools and for kids to get really excited about energy technologies and really fascinated particularly young girls like you've highlighted to be interested and fascinated in this space and I will say the young women and men 
of this generation are amazing. The amount of passion for this planet that I have seen in my own students is formidable and powerful. And my only hope is that that continues throughout the generations, and I think it will. I think it will get more and more salient as time goes on. And so I already view our young women as leaders. I really, really do. And it's incredible to see what some of my students have done. For example, I had a, a group of students, majority female, who created an app to tra track climate emissions for university students to encourage them not to drive to campus, but to take the train and the bus or, or bike. Just these ingenious ideas to basically give people um, better daily habits around their carbon budget. Is it um, more of a personal responsibility to limit climate change or a broader government or corporate responsibility, do you think? Because mm, given the... This is a complex question. Yeah, like given, given the, you know, for example, if you take me and my day, um, you know, I caught the bus to uni today, um, not because I was trying to reduce my carbon emissions, but because I actually could not afford the park. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Scrap that. <laughs> Which is another policy mechanism, by the way, expensive parking, yes, yeah. to try and discourage people. Yeah, no, and no, I, I've actually been reading a lot, and this is a bit of a tangent here, but I've been, um, I actually had a motorbike uh, in 2018 and 19, um, and because of that, I figured out that um, there is free parking in the city. You don't have to pay for it if you're on a motorbike. And the reason behind that was you know, to one, reduce emissions and two, reduce traffic. Because if you're on a bike instead of a, a car, taking up less space, mm. using less oil and um, emitting less greenhouse emissions. And so there are like sort of whispers of those policies around at the moment. But I don't think it's really controversial to say that it's nowhere near enough. Yeah. Um, and I guess um, that sort of leads me into my next question that I had for you. Um, and that is, do you think that the current government's um, reluctance to do any action on climate change, for example, they only declared that they wanted to reach net zero uh, emissions by 2050 in October of last year. Do you think that inaction has set us back significantly? Certainly. It is so disappointing and frankly embarrassing that Australia is still turning up to international conferences of the parties with such a dismal target. Um, we're not where our allies are, for example, with the US, 50% uh, by 2030. We do not have a 2030 target. And all of the credible climate scientists out there confirm that we need to make rapid emissions reductions this decade. We need to be reaching net zero by 2037, 2040, to actually have a chance of staying at 1.5 degrees. And my wonderful, wonderful colleagues at the Climate Council, scientists, uh, particularly Will, Stefan, tell, tell me this monthly. Um, and to work with scientists is such a privilege of mine because I think the law needs a greater role, role in this space. And we've been dependent on our scientists to sort of save us, but the law needs to be there to guide strategy. And it's time for our government, obviously, to step up. Um, I will say at the state and territory level, we are seeing some amazing progress. It's not all of Australia. Um, in New South Wales, our electricity infrastructure roadmap is world-class. 
Um, Victoria has just announced their offshore wind target. There are some wonderful things. South Australia is nearly 100% renewable energy powered. So what I'm saying is the decentralization of energy and of governance is beneficial to our transmission and our transformation of that transmission. So at a federal level, uh, we've been a climate laggard for many, many, many years in Australia. And that is because of our, our dependence on fossil fuel exports. Until that changes rapidly, uh, we will be wedded to those fossil fuel exports. And the IEA and other organisations have already categorically um, come out and said, and the IPCC reports, of course, that we cannot longer burn fossil fuels if we are to have a chance of reaching 1.5. Sort of 95% of everything needs to be left in the ground is essentially what the IEA says. And we have all of the corporate responses to that as well. We've got the ACCC just coming out this month saying we're going to prosecute greenwashing. We have the NFF, we have all of these big conglomerates saying, and even energy companies themselves, of course, that we want net zero. And so the market is moving. Hmm. Finance is moving very, very rapidly, much more rapidly than the policies and any law or lack thereof at the federal level. And that tells you something. And I think just going back to your earlier question, Brayden, around is it a collective responsibility or is it an individual responsibility to respond to energy and climate change? Well, I think it is very easy um, to be depressed about this. And there's so many studies about climate change and energy and um, the feeling of hopelessness. And I think what's so important is to look at ourselves individually and think that if there's just one choice that you can make taking the, the bus like you did, Brayden, or um, those little choices, not eating red meat, for example, that all adds up to something. So to sit back and say, let's leave it to uh, the federal government or other governments, um, that's not energy justice because we're all in this together. It's about the power of communities and collectives. And communities and collectives want a voice in decision-making. And in order to have that voice, you need to practice what you preach. So it's an individual responsibility and a collective responsibility. Mm. No, definitely. I think um, it is something that everyone has to do together, you know, one step at a time. And it does make change over a matter of years, but yeah. Yeah, I certainly agree with that as well. I think it, it is interesting to discuss in that sense. Um, I guess the answer to that question could be it's both. Um, but it is funny when you have, um, you know, corporations catching up and doing the, the legwork on uh, on climate action instead of the government when it really should be the other way around. It should be the government dragging corporations kicking and screaming into the future um, rather than the corporations or the state government in this sense dragging the federal government. And I think, yeah, but you have South Australia there. That's a, a fantastic example of, you know, the Tesla battery that they built there and, you know, the strength to strength that they keep going to when it comes to renewable energy. And I, I guess less of a question and more of a statement. I can't really fathom how we haven't as a nation. Um, and I've talked about this in previous episodes, uh, if our loyal listeners um, remember this, but why Australia hasn't become a, a renewable energy superpower. We have so much space in the country. We have um, all these natural resources. Of course, a lot of them are in the ground and that's not great for emissions. But we have deserts and, and all this land that we could use to move towards renewable energy. And like what you've been saying, incorporate 
you know, the, the environmental justice element there. So, for example, if you want to build a solar or a wind farm on, on First Nations land, you know, collaborate with the First Nations, you know, um, make sure that you're doing it in a way that is, uh, is best for all involved. And really, yeah. it's, it's kind of funny that we even need to talk about this. Um, why isn't government putting the nation's needs you know, first, why, why is it something that we have to fight for? I would have thought that it's, uh, it's just a, it's something that the government is supposed to do. Um, and I guess that sort of speaks to the state of, uh, of government, you know, in Australia and worldwide at the moment. Mm, that's right. And, and you have to ask the question, um, which is a very legal theoretical question, actually, what is the role of the state? What is the role of the government generally when it comes to energy and traditionally it's been one of ownership of transmission of the electricity grid these sorts of very commercial pragmatic stances but now it's the role of the state to incorporate energy justice and we've seen that in some jurisdictions like denmark for example where they have actually they are going to be halting the award of new gas licenses offshore in their sea this is the sort of leadership we need. So it's it's clear that other jurisdictions are promulgating best practices. At a federal level, we're lagging. At a state and territory level, and I would say even at a very um, you know, community level, like at the Hepburn Witten Farm, we are seeing communities leading, really leading this transmission. And I believe that's what's needed. I do. I believe a total system transformation and a total different reimagination of the role of the law and justice and policy to ensure co-benefits. So not that we just have the basic provision of energy that's clean, that's that's a sustainable development goal. That's sustainable development goal number seven, clean and affordable <laughs> energy, we all deserve that. But it's going a step further then. It's actually the benefits around that. So I'm doing some research at the moment, for example, around the co-location of farmland and solar and speaking to farmers about how solar energy not only provides you a nice little bit of rent, it's a solar lease, of course, and I hope you've done your property law, you know what that means, um, but also to graze sheep underneath. So you're, you're getting this monetary benefit, you're getting a sustainability and a decarbonisation benefit. And how can we use the law to encourage that sort of coexistence and co-location? It's, it's wonderful to see agri-PV technology flourishing. So. These are the sorts of things we need to be looking at. Researchers are now looking at how to, um, for example, clean solar panels um, without using any water by vibrations. Just these oh, wow. amazing technological advances which show a whole of life cycle systems approach to energy. And that's exactly what we need. Mm. Wow. I mean... It just sounds amazing, like what you've just talked about. And we could definitely learn a lot from all these other nations. Like I think one of the first cases about climate change and human rights was uh, fought at The Hague in June 2015. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I don't remember the details of the case, but would you know about this case? Are you talking about um, that the, there's a number of cases? The there most, are a few. I think the most pertinent one that's probably the most... Relevant, yes, the first was in The Hague, of course, is actually the Shell case that was just handed down very recently. 
because we've kind of got these different waves of climate litigation, as you were describing. We have the original wave of climate litigation, which is around holding governments to account. And that was holding um, basically uh, the government in the Netherlands to account to committing to emissions reductions. But the Shell case most recently is so fascinating to me because it's crossing that line to holding corporations to account. And those of you who have done corporate law know how very difficult that is. And it's amazing that we've seen The Hague essentially order Shell to reduce its emissions even further than it had proposed in its corporate plan. Um, and that's worldwide. The Shell Group is a huge entity, of course, and a group of companies. So what we're starting to see in climate litigation, um, particularly from the Netherlands, is crossing that boundary. No longer are we holding governments to account, but corporations as well. And then the most recent strand of climate litigation, or the third wave, is um, centered on human rights. So the right to life, the right to a healthy environment, these sorts of things are now being prosecuted because of climate change, um, holding in jeopardy the right to life for so many. Mm. And we have an amazing climate ca case going through the courts right now. Um, for our First Nations here in Australia, our Torres Strait Islanders who are arguing the right to life because of sea level rise and trying to hold the government to account. So there's many different strands of, of climate litigation and it is my hope that energy justice will be another strand coming through. Mm. And that does bring us uh, nice and neatly to the next part, which is um, the case that was recently overturned by the full court of the Federal Court of Australia, um, which is the, I think, I believe the legal principle was um, determining that the Federal Environment Minister, Susan Lay, um, had a duty of care to children who were a part of a, a class action lawsuit um, to take into account climate change um, and the environment when approving coal mining projects. I believe it was a coal mine extension in Gunnedah. Um, and we've seen that be uh, overturned quite recently. So I think the question I'm going to ask you in, in this regard is, do you think litigation is often an effective tool? I know we talked about this earlier with about a 53% um, success rate, I believe, off the top of my head. Um, do you think litigation is an appropriate tool to um, you know, find climate justice and, and build it up within the community, um, and why? Yeah. So... Indeed, today is an important day uh, where, unfortunately, that decision, the Sharma case, has been overturned on appeal to a three-justice bench in the federal court. And this was a landmark case when it was first handed down, uh, whereby we had the link between the federal environment minister and um, children under 18 over the proposed extension of a coal mine, the Bickery coal mine, the Whitehaven Bickery coal mine. And there was found to be a duty. So a common law tort of negligence there, a duty of care. So for the first time in Australia, we saw climate litigation stepping into the world of the common law, which is amazing. Not just statute and that sort of thing, but looking into negligence, which is just fascinating rather than human rights or the other things we've mentioned. That was such an exciting day for so many people, including all of like, the young Australians, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, and unfortunately today that was overturned. And 
The reason for that is because really there, it was unanimous um, in the overturning of the appeal. There was no sufficient degree of proximity and reasonable foreseeability. Um, those negligence terms that you will all mm. know and love between emissions reduction and personal injury of young Australians. Mm. Now, when you look at that, um, you can see that automatically what we're looking at here is uh, a bench that's taken a case-by-case -case approach and said, this coal mine extension will represent so little emissions in our view. We can't see that reasonable foreseeability. We can't see that link. And so it's not of concern. Mm. And that's the wrong way to be looking at this. Yeah. The way yeah. you're looking at it is cumulative effects. And that's what we've seen, for example, in the Rocky Hill case, where we've seen cumulative effects, scope three emissions being taken into account. Yeah, it is interesting to discuss because, of course, if the scope of liability cannot be extended to, um, you know, the, the potential injury or negligence, then you can't hold that person liable. And I think, um, personally, I would actually, and of course, I haven't gone and considered the evidence like the yeah. bench has, um, but I would say it is almost, it would satisfy that reasonable foreseeability. But I think the reason why this case sort of failed in that regard um, would be because the court was unwilling to impose that sort of policy argument um, when yes. deciding this case. And so I did a bit of reading on this case this morning um, and mm. what stuck out to me was the court saying that this wasn't the role of the court to do this. It was the role of the legislature to, uh, to make sure that they create laws like that. But then the judge... Um, I believe it was the judge, it might have been somebody else in the article said, um, but perhaps mm. the reason why this has come to the courts is because of the fact that there is no such policy or legislation that achieves this purpose. So it is interesting to use litigation That's in that right. regard. Yeah. Yeah, and one has to ask the question, what is the role of the courts uh, when it comes to this? And what's interesting you know where's the separation of powers here is, is what we, we're constantly asking ourselves when it comes to climate litigation but what is certainly the case is the evolution of the courts in climate litigation okay yes we've seen um it's, it's quite difficult to to bring that that tort of negligence argument in australian court it's significantly easier because there's um a broader duty, for example, in the Netherlands, and that's why the Shell case was able to, to go through successfully. So it depends on where you're looking. But what I will say is that I've noticed the courts, particularly in Australia, particularly the Land and Environment Courts, of course, Chief Justice Brian Preston, pushing the envelope there and actually taking into account, for example, the evidence of scientists Taking into account expert evidence of climate science scientists is a very new phenomenon in the courts. And that's progress to me. Uh, yes, we've got 53% global success rate, but the point is it's educating people. It's getting people interested in what this is all about. So although this appeal was overturned, it's airing the gaps, the burdens in the law and questioning what is the role of the the law in this space? What's the role of the courts? What's the role of the government? Um, what's the role of very high public policy? And it depends on which jurisdiction you're looking at. So it's a fascinating socio-legal example, I think, of where we're at in litigation around climate in Australia. 
Yeah, it's definitely breaking barriers as well as being an educational tool for so many. You know, we've got a lot to learn. And like you said, um, you know, science reports being introduced in court, which is not something you see a lot. So that's amazing to hear as well. Mm, I think it's uh, it's almost like legitimising client science um, in by accepting expert, expert evidence from client scientists into these rulings, like you just mentioned, it does, you know, sort of give the message, this is real and this is science because for so long we've had so much debate about whether or not climate change is real. But yeah. like you mentioned earlier, I don't think, um, I think this generation is quite strongly for climate science. Um, I can't imagine talking to any of my friends and them telling me that uh, climate change isn't real or <laughs> isn't as important as what it is because, yeah. and and I guess it is, it's really almost reassuring like you mentioned, to feel hopeless um, about climate science and climate change, well, knowing that people of our generation are so adamantly pro-climate science that by the time our generation gets, you know, to become sitting MPs, becomes, you know, in positions of power at corporations and things like that, can actively work to fix it. But I guess the problem is by the time we reach there, are we already going to be underwater? (laughs) Which is kind of morbid. That young people are doing now. I know, unfortunately, you don't. You're not legally allowed to sit in parliament. Some of the very younger generation and that sort of thing. But um, educating and talking to each other and acting is is absolutely the most important thing you can do. And really immersing yourself in this space. So I think that there's a lot of hope and there actually is a lot of optimism in this younger generation. I'm so inspired by them every day in, in their hope and in their persistence in this. And I just think it's, it's wonderful. And I look forward to seeing more of it, frankly. Um, I'm excited for this next generation to come up the ranks and to lead. It's so desperately needed. And we're seeing, um, even in some jurisdictions, um, in Scandinavia, for example, we're seeing really young MPs getting in and being very strong on climate action and energy. So we're already starting to see that. Mm. It's really cool to see, I think. Well, what was the country that has um, a really young um, prime minister in in Europe? talking about... Do you remember off the top of your head? I think you're talking about Finland. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And I believe it was also something like 50% of... The oh, parliament. they had Is more, they young, they had more women people. in yes. cabinet or in the party than they had men. Yeah. Which is funny because... People think that's so monumental, but we've had more men than women for ages. And it's nice. I think it's almost like a point where it's like, okay, the tide is turning. We can finally, you know, forget about all of these, um, you know, sexist. I mean, of course, we're not in that space yet. But, you know, it's the first rumblings of moving to a world where we have true gender equality. And, you know, I just I guess I just hope I see it within my lifetime. Yes, and, and Scandinavia has led the way in so many aspects of this whole debate. We could talk about EVs, we could talk about all these sorts of things, but you know, particularly in Scandinavian countries when it comes to female representation, they were the first countries to implement legally binding legislative quotas for corporations, for boardrooms, and that was huge at the time when Norway implemented that. Um, you know, a quota for females in the border that was just you know, unheard of <laughs> at that time. And now look how far we've come. Australia has got a very long way to go when it comes to female leadership um, in these echelons of society. 
uh, in, in ASX top 100, in federal parliament and beyond. Uh, we, we desperately need more female and more marginalized females as well, and diverse females on boardrooms in parliament and in these positions of leadership it's absolutely essential and we've seen the scandinavian countries really um, move forward with this and really pioneer this with these mandatory legislative quotas around females in the boardroom and it's had a huge hugely positive effect like you say Brayden. so i think moving forward um, that's something else that we can consider uh, looking at the role of leadership in the climate and energy space ensuring a diversity of voices is absolutely essential yeah and i i completely agree i think um more women need to be put in these um positions of power for example the you know on companies in the asx top 100 certainly in um positions of power when it comes to government um i believe you know we should be around about that 50 percent in parliament and it shouldn't be any you know different than that um you know, like I think at the moment the the cabinet is overwhelmingly male, mm. um, but I could be wrong on that. Anyway, what I was saying uh, is, I've seen this firsthand on how successful um, you know young women are in in just doing things. Like it's it's actually insane. Um, you know, working on this executive, I don't think I've worked with a more coherent, organised, um, and switched on group of people in my life, um, and it's just really cool to see. Whereas if you if you turn the clock back, you know you would have um, typically very little women studying law at UTS. And now I look around in my classes, and there's generally more girls than boys. Um, so I think that's something that is really really cool, and it will be paying dividends in the decades to come yeah. when you know our generation is is moving into those positions of power. Mm, certainly, and it's and it's crucial in law. We need more female partners. We need more female judiciary members. Um, we have been churning out for a long time, majority female law graduates, but are they in positions of leadership long-term? That's the next step mm. that we need to take is ensuring that full fruition through the leadership positions. Yep, and as Braden said, we are turning the tide, but it's time for this to be the new normal now. And we are seeing that time and time again, which is just awesome to see as a woman myself as well. Yes. Wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on the bar, Madeline. We hope you had a good time today. I certainly did. Thank you very much. My pleasure. It was fantastic chatting. I think I learned a lot. Um, so, yeah, we would love to have you back at some stage and uh, all the best in, uh, in future endeavours. Thank you. You too. Thank you so much for tuning in to Season 3, Episode 5 of The Bar. We hope you've had a good time listening today. I've been Perina. I've been Brayden. And we'll see you next week for the happiest happy hour.